0: She was
1: pretty good. We'll hear argument next in case 08678, Mohawk Industries versus Carpenter. Mr. Allen.
2: Mr. Chief Justice and may it please the court. For well over a century this court has recognized the importance of the attorney client privilege. In Hunt versus Blackburn, in eighteen eighty eight, the court clearly stated that the seal of secrecy upon communications between client and attorney is founded upon the necessity in the interest of justice, that the aid and advice of persons having knowledge and skill in the practice of law provide that advice in a manner that is safely and readily available and, importantly, free from the consequences or apprehension of disclosure. Dr. Allen,
0: except for the fact that you and I are lawyers, do you really think that uh, that uh, confidentiality right is any more important uh, to the proper functioning of society than, let's say, the protection of trade secrets, so that in a case of discovery where the defendant says, if I – Produce this, I would be uh, giving up a trade secret, and it's not necessary for the case. And the judge says, "No, turn it over." Would there be, uh, in in your view, a right to interlocutory appeal in that case? And if not there, then why here? Well,
2: Justice Scalia, there there are several uh, answers to the question. Let me far- start first with the the uh, issue of the importance of uh, the attorney-client privilege as a key and central element of the administration of justice that this Court has recognized, not just with Hunt, but in a number of cases since. But the, the question, I think, also goes more to prong three of Cohen, which is the reviewability standard. In, in the context of attorney-client privilege information, once that information is disclosed to your adversary, it's disclosed to the last person on earth you might want to see it.
0: The same thing with a trade secret. It's a suit between another company who's a competitor of yours. And but the judge says, turn over your trade secret, the formula for Coca-Cola. And, uh, you say no, no interlocutory appeal, right?
2: I think with trade Or do you say
0: there should be an interlocutory appeal there?
2: Your Honor, we, we do not argue that here that there should be an interlocutory appeal for trade secrets. I, I think the practical resolution, uh, to the trade secret question is present in most cases of commercial litigation where the court would provide a, uh, a, a, a protective order limiting access to the trade secret. In other words, limiting access to counsel. But what only- if court doesn't?
3: That's I'm Justice sorry. Scalia's positing. The court here could do the same thing it, depending on the secret being disclosed. It could set up any number of protective mechanisms. The issue is broader than that, which is why is the public policy of anti-disclosure any more important in the attorney-client privilege than in the trade secret context?
2: Yes, Justice Sotomayor. But with regard to the attorney-client privilege, first on the issue of the protective order, the protective order cannot limit the adversary's counsel from seeing the information. As I said earlier, I think that's the last person in the world you'd want to see. You could limit access to trade secrets to counsel who could make no use of the Coca-Cola formula or or Colonel Sanders' chicken recipe, but but the — Ah, are you sure? (laughs) (laughs) But but the answer to the the importance question, I think, has to return to the central and important role that the privilege plays in the administration of justice. But isn't the role,
3: the central role, role is to encourage the frank and open communication between client and attorney? That's the purpose of the rule, isn't it?
2: it? it is the purpose of the rule it, All right. at least in if that park, is the on. purpose
3: the very existence of exceptions infringes that purpose the minute you create an exception you are placing some sort of limitation to the frank and open discussion that you're permitting so the damage is already done the further disclosure doesn't really serve the purpose or help the purpose in any meaningful way. The fact that an erroneous decision on attorney-client disclosure is not going to stop people from talking to lawyers if they really need to, and they're staying within the
2: rules. Your Honor, I, I don't think we're here to suggest that it would stop people from talking to their lawyers. I think the point is that the incremental erosion of the rule is going to lessen the value of the privilege. Well, but that's
3: what I'm trying to figure out, because you're positing that erroneous decisions on disclosures are being made routinely by the lower courts, assuming, as I do, that there are some erroneous disclosures, but that that's not necessarily the majority. Why is there an incremental erosion significant enough to overcome our interest in the finality rule?
2: Your Honor, I don't think we suggest that that, uh, erroneous orders on privilege are occurring routinely. Certainly, we have suggested they occurred in this case and that they happened in other cases. But I I think the the more direct answer to your question goes to the Court's uh, uh, holding in Upjohn. One of the things that Upjohn points out is that what's necessary — and I think the Court uh, makes a similar um, uh, observation in Swidler uh, and Berlin that one of the things that's necessary for the privilege to have effect is predictability. If if there is no predictability then you fall back to the apprehension or the worry of disclosure that that is observed in Hunt.
0: Okay, let's talk about predictability. Once you make an exception for waiver, there's already that limitation. It's not absolute. Maybe it can be waived. Secondly, you have to worry about a district court finding it to have been waived, even though it really wasn't. That's another uh, point of doubt. And thirdly, you have to worry about the Supreme Court affirming a district court that wrongly found it to have been waived, because we give, you know, uh, weight to the fact-finding of, uh, of, of the district court once you once you factor in all of those uncertainties you're not talking about a you know about a failsafe uh, privilege at all there 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 are those doubts and i'm not sure the doubts are increased enormously by simply saying uh, a district court may make a mistake without without your being able to go up to the court of appeals on that mistake
2: your honor i i, I don't disagree that uh, that the, um, the rule we search for will not uh, still have problems with the uh, protection of the attorney-client privilege. But I do disagree that it will not significantly improve the quality of the rules that, that counsel are, are designed or counsel are, are instructed to follow.
4: Mr. I- Allen, you used a term before, and I think you were right in using it. You said interlocutory review. But cone be Beneficial is a narrow exception, and it, the theory is it is a final judgment. It's not interlocutory. And nowadays, the courts have 1292B. They can certify a question if they think it's sufficiently important and they need an answer without pretending that it's a final judgment in the case. So given 1292B, Shouldn't uh, uh, we be particularly reluctant to extend Cone be beneficial to include a case of a privilege that maybe was wrongfully denied?
2: No, Justice Ginsburg, I don't believe that you do. Uh, I, I use the term interlocutory only to refer to the fact that the appeal would take place while the case in chief proceeds.
4: And that's what 1292B was meant to deal with.
2: I don't think 1292 uh, would ob- would obtain in this instance, and I think the, the judge in the District Court made this observation uh, himself. Although he did not expound on his reasoning, uh, it would appear that the reasoning would be that, this, that, that a uh, decision in this case is not likely to materially advance the ultimate termination of the litigation. So therefore, I think 1292B would not be uh, applicable in the ordinary case to a to a ruling finding waiver to the attorney-client.
5: Why do you think that that this privilege, or is it, uh, more important than any other privilege? I mean, Justice Scalia's question and your answer convince me that you can protect this the same as you can any other trade secret, any trade secret. Of course, you do disclose it to the opposing party, but that's also true of any breach, of any privilege. So husband-wife, priest-penitent, psychiatrist and patient. I take all those as privileged. do we allow collateral appeals there?
2: If I mean, no, Your Honor, you have Well, not. if
5: we don't allow collateral appeals with a husband and wife, with a priest, and, 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 and someone, uh, you know, pe- uh, confession or something, I don't know, with a priest or, or with a psychiatrist who is dealing with a patient, why would we allow collateral appeal here?
2: Your Honour, first of all, I, I don't think the issue of those other uh, privileges has, uh, to the best of my knowledge, come before this court. Then, if
5: we grant your collateral appeal, don't we have to perhaps equally grant it in every situation where a judge arguably makes an erroneous ruling on a question of privilege?
2: I, I don't believe you do, Your Honour. And, and let me say, first of all, the 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 uh, instance that Your Honor points to where the information would be disclosed to the other party. It's not the other party in this instance. It's that, the lawyer. That you're worried about in the first instance. It, it is, in fact, the counsel. And, and, and second of all, I think the importance criteria, uh, as, as previously defined in this Court's uh, cases, is a measure of the importance of the interest that will be lost if appeal is not available in the So now. it's, in your
5: opinion, it's more important uh, to uh, protect the lawyers who talk to clients from erroneous rulings than protect the priest or protect a wife or husband or protect uh, uh, the psychiatrist who's dealing with a patient now that's hard for me to see why i mean i think lawyers are very important uh, but it's a little hard to see why they're more important than these other people
3: what is the use i'm I'm sorry to cut you off but what is the use by the adversary lawyer That you're worried about. That the lawyer is going to use the information against your client, correct? Correct, Your Honor. So there is a remedy after final judgment. If the information was disclosed erroneously, the court sets aside the judgment, sends it back, and says you can't use it in the future. And so make your case without it.
2: Your Honor, that, I apologize
3: why isn't that an effective remedy for the harm that you're claiming exists in the disclosure?
2: That, that is the analysis that, that the Eleventh Circuit applied, and I think it was incorrect for the following reasons. First of all, it, it treats the attorney-client privilege as if it is a use privilege, as, as you describe it in your question. It is not a use privilege. It's a right to be free from compelled disclosure. So returning to, to, to trial, is not going to undisclose the information that's already. Argu- you have a
3: right to choose your lawyer and not to be tri- and not to be represented by a, by a different lawyer, and yet we don't permit that to be interlocutorily appealed. Th- that is why. Why is this any greater in terms of the harm that your client
2: suffers? Th- that is correct, Your Honor, but in the attorney-client privilege cases. This Court did not find that collateral order jurisdiction did not obtain because of the fact that the attorney-client privilege — or the attorney-client, excuse me, disqualification cases were not important. The Court's ruling was premised upon the fact that that order was sufficiently reviewable under prong three of Cohen. So it's not — the decisions were not based on Cohen. I
3: understand what the Court below did. I'm just following up on your point about the importance of this privilege and why it's critical that it be subject to interlocutory appeal as opposed to the Final Judgment Rule?
2: JUSTICE SOTOMAYOR, the, the importance in this instance is, is measured against the societal importance or the societal need for non-piecemeal application of the Final Judgment Rule. So when you measure the attorney-client privilege and the role that it plays in the administration of justice in ensuring observance with laws, against a rule of efficiency, in this instance, in our view, the attorney-client privilege weighs heavier
4: It's, in, not, in it's not a rule of efficiency. It's a firm final judgment rule that we have in the Federal system. And we're talking about a narrow exception. The exception was first declared in Cone against Beneficial. The question there was security for costs. Yes or no? Does that... That is a pure question of law. It doesn't depend on the variety of factual circumstances. Attorney-client is quite different because it can often be fact-bound. It depends upon this particular case. Cone be beneficial was meant for the kind of question that doesn't get you into the facts. Otherwise, it, once you get into once it's a fact question, you are really eroding the Final Judgment Rule.
2: I, I understand your, your question, Justice Ginsburg. I, I think in this instance, the, the facts that the Court would need to consider are sufficiently narrow that it shall not trouble the Final Judgment Rule, and sufficiently collateral. But
4: you're carving out an area, attorney-client cl- privilege, as opposed to the kind of situation Cohen against Beneficial dealt with. Here's a rule that a state has. You have to put up security for costs before you go ahead with a class action. The answer to that is either yes or no, that Erie requires it or it doesn't require it. No facts at all. You just have a class action. You need security for costs. Maybe this particular case doesn't involve many facts, but there will be attorney client privileges cases, waiver cases that truly do. So we can't take that category, attorney-client privilege, and equate it to what was the kind of question at issue in Cohen.
2: I agree, Justice Ginsburg, that that was the kind of narrow issue that, that was at issue in, in Cohen be Beneficial Industrial. But this Court has considered much more factually intensive cases in the context of qualified immunity or maybe, as a better example, the context of a double jeopardy uh, claim, such as an ABNI.
4: Because those are cases that say your right is not to be tried. Your right is not to be exposed to trial at all.
2: That, that is correct, Your Honor. My only point is that the appellate courts are perfectly capable and able to consider the facts that are at issue in those cases, and it does not unduly burden the appellate process uh, it, in the context of those type of cases.
0: May I ask two yes-or-no questions? One, did you, in fact, ask for a 1292 right to appeal, make an interlocutory appeal?
2: No, Your Honor, we did not.
0: And the second question is, would your rule uh, apply if the decision had gone the other way, if, if they had denied access to the documents? Would the other, would the person seeking discovery have the same right to appeal that you asked for here?
2: No, Your Honor. The the party losing the claim would not have the same right to appeal. I, I think access to information in the course of discovery does not trigger the same important interest that orders compelling discovery of attorney-client privilege would trigger. So I, I don't think that they would in any way um, uh, satisfy that test. And I think, in fact, the question presented as designed even by respondent, does not capture orders uh, that deny the disclosure of attorney-client privilege information.
1: It's some time ago, Justice Breyer asked the question of why is this different than the other privileges, and I'd like your answer to that.
2: Justice Breyer, I, I think that the answer to that question is, has to focus on the role that the privilege plays in the administration of justice. And it's why I went, uh, in response to Justice Sotomayor's question, why I went to the balancing between the interest of the attorney-client privilege versus the interest of uh, a, a more rigorous application of the Final Judgment Rule. So, so while I think it's instructive to compare the privilege to other privileges that the Court may in the future confront, I, I think the proper analysis is to balance that that rigorous application of the Final Judgment Rule to the attorney-client privilege. And I think in that instance it, it resolves more quickly.
4: Mr. Allen, one of the purposes, one of the um, the, the uh Underpinnings of cone against beneficial is that this kind of question is not going to come up very often. But attorney-client privilege, and once you say that that's open to you, everything stops while you go to the court of appeals to get that. And if you and if we hold the way you want us to, then a, a lawyer will be obligated every time she thinks that she has a valid claim to the privilege or that it hasn't been waived, she would be obligated to take an appeal, which you were urging would be an appeal of right.
2: JUSTICE GINSBURG, I, I don't believe that the attorney would be obligated to take the appeal. And, and I, I believe that the uh, that, that the facts that we've laid out in our brief with regard to what has actually occurred, we wonder how many appeals might take place. We know. How many appeals might take place? Because we have the experience in the third and the ninth and the D.C. circuits that, that tell us that in the 11 years since Ford was decided uh, by Judge Becker uh, in the third circuit, the opinion by Judge Becker in the third circuit, that there have been only 11 such cases brought up in appeal. So we we have some experience to tell us what will actually happen. But I don't believe it requires that the attorney, as a matter of obligation, take that appeal. The court. I believe, uh, uh, dealt with this same issue in the Barons v. Polite case, which is a, a qualified immunity case, where the Court wondered whether or not there were going to be an increase, a significant increase, in the, uh, the, the appeals that, that arose out of, out of the Court's holding. And the Court observed that the only conclusion that could be reached, and I believe they, they, the Court uh, quoted in that opinion uh, the opinion of Judge, Judge Easterbrook in the Abel case in the Seventh Circuit, that the only uh, conclusion that could be drawn is that there was forbearance by the lawyers in taking appeals that they otherwise had the opportunity to take. I think there's no reason to conclude that there would be a difference uh, in the analysis in, in the case here.
3: Are you, just so I'm clear about your position, are you arguing that all issues related to attorney-client, whether they're waiver, crime for fraud, scope of the privilege, et cetera, that all issues are immediately appealable because the public interest is the same in all cases related to the attorney client privilege, or are you wanting us to limit this rule only to the waiver cases?
2: N- n- correct, Your Honor. We have asked that the court address, in this instance, the question presented having to do with only waiver cases.
3: So, but your position logically would apply to everything, wouldn't it? Your Honor. I- Otherwise, how do we distinguish or make a difference? In your analysis?
2: I think it certainly, uh, it certainly should be assumed that if this court rules in our favor, it must conclude that the attorney client privilege is important. If it concludes that the. No, that no one's doubting its importance. The issue
3: is whether that importance outweighs the finality rule. That's a very different inquiry.
2: I, I agree. But, but in order to get to, to the position we advocate, the court must pass that threshold and establish importance. If the court reaches that conclusion, it is certainly likely that the importance test in other existence of, of privilege cases, for example, uh, would obtain. I, I don't think that compels the conclusion that any case addressing privilege must therefore be permitted collateral order jurisdiction. For example, I, I believe you recited the, the, the crime fraud exception in your, uh, in your question. Certainly, crime fraud exception might present a difficulty with prong two of the co analysis, which has to do with the separability of the issue on appeal from merits. So it may well be that in crime fraud cases, there is not sufficient separability of the issue uh, from the merits, and therefore collateral order jurisdiction would not obtain. As I mentioned uh, earlier, I think we're in agreement that orders uh, that deny the disclosure of information would not be uh, uh, immediately appealable. So, so there, there are a number of instances that this Court might find in what I'll call general privilege cases that might not obtain. And, and it's the course that the Court has taken in other sort of general areas of law. For example, in the attorney disqualification cases. The Court started off in Firestone, finding that orders uh, denying disqualification Uh, did not satisfy collateral order jurisdiction, and it limited its holdings to to that instance. In Flanagan, it took up the question of whether or not collateral order jurisdiction obtained in disqualification cases, in criminal cases, and in Richardson Merrill, in civil cases. So the Court has traditionally taken, uh, if you will, the, the facts of the case presented to them and limited its rulings to the facts of those cases. We suggest that approach in this case. Is
4: there any sensible line between an invocation of the privilege denied and a holding that the privilege has been waived? I know in your reply brief you, you draw some kind of a distinction between waiver of the privilege and the existence of the privilege, but I didn't follow it.
2: Other than the examples that I, that I just gave, Your Honor, I, I don't think there's a principal difference between the finding of importance. And and that's that's clearly a threshold issue, as as the Court said and will. It's it's uh, what the issues ultimately boil down to. So with regard to that issue, I I agree. But with regard to crime fraud exception or instances when uh, no disclosure is is ordered, another example that I think the respondent points to in their brief is instances of inadvertent disclosure. Uh, Instances of inadvertent disclosure would not trigger the the prejudice element necessary because – the, the, if you will, the cat is, in fact, already out of the bag at that point.
4: There's another, I mean, you're, you're stressing the importance of the attorney-client relationship, the work of the attorney. Do you extend your position to work product? It's not privilege.
2: No, it's Your Honor, you
4: It's certainly protected against disclosure.
2: We we do not uh, extend the the rule that we advocate to uh, work product in the the broad sense. Certainly there are exceptions within Rule 26 to when work work product can, in fact, under the right circumstances, uh, be disclosed. So we are not embracing the the work product as a general rule. Certainly the mental impressions of of, of counsel, which is the important exclusion of the work product doctrine in Rule 26, Uh, We would embrace as as, as an appropriate limitation on the rule uh, that we are advocating. Mr. Chief Justice, if there are no further questions, may I reserve the remainder of my time?
1: Thank you, counsel. Ms. Rezick?
6: Thank you. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court? Before 1997, no circuit held that there was appeal as of right for privilege or waiver, and most of the circuits continue that approach. That's the right approach because attorney-client privilege cases don't get the parameters of the Cohen appealability and there are alternative responses that are available on the remedial side. In terms of the Cohen factors, the, the factor of importance, which has just been uh, discussed here, This Court has, over the 60 years with some 30 opinions, refined the importance test and moved it away from the questions of place, shape of litigation, dynamics of litigation to a very narrow set of cases in which the government is typically a party or a government official, and there is a very uh, significant either constitutional or statutory question principally of immunity from suit.
1: Well, we'll get to that, I think, when the government lawyer gets up, but does that distinction make sense to you? Uh,
6: yeah, I, I think the- Government
1: lawyers get the privilege, private lawyers don't?
6: Uh, as I understand the government's position here, it's that ordinary government lawyers don't get the privilege in ordinary litigation. The government is here to speak to the question of state secrets and a particular kinds of, of particular official privileges, but not to the regular case. And I think it's important that we understand from, from the presence of them that this is a rule that is appropriate for lawyers on all sides of the fence because the immediate availability of appeal as of right stops in the tracks. The case was uh, decided at the District Court in October of 2007. And holding aside these proceedings, it was August of 2008 when when the 11th Circuit rejected the mandamus and the appeal. So the wisdom of the final judgment rule is precisely because the cost and delay, particularly in the area of discovery and evidentiary privileges, is so significant given that there are so many of these. And one of the important But we're
1: talking about the central privilege to the maintenance of the adversary system, which we've determined to be central to maintaining the rule of law. This is not like the other privileges, priest penitent, uh, other evidentiary privileges, because it is the privilege that allows lawyers to protect the interests in those other cases. And it just seems to me that the, the to allow a single ruling by a district court judge to undermine the privilege is going to affect people? What — I mean, the the statement of the lawyer could be, look, you're going to lose this case. Um, uh, And you're saying the district court can require the disclosure of that without allowing at least a quick trip to the Court of Appeals to check it out?
6: Well, there are remedies — there are two directions for an answer. One is that in all the courts of appeals, the three circuits that have this rule, Work product, as well as, as attorney-client privilege, is available in appeal in the Third Circuit. Trade Secrets is available, though the Third Circuit has now raised questions given Will v. Halleck and Cunningham about whether or not this remains a viable position, but Trade Secrets is available. Psychotherapist is appealable, spouse is appealable, and non-testifying expert as That's well. That's in the which, Third Circuit. Which is, the, well, the Third, the Ninth, and the D.C. together are the three that have opened up the door. And they have found, the experience of those appellate judges has not found that it is easy to make the distinctions among these, and as a consequence, there is appeal as of right for this entire cluster of cases. In Dr.
4: Allen has told us that there are very few cases, in fact, eleven cases in I don't know how many years in the Third Circuit.
6: Well that I take to be the cheerful news is that by and large everyone's getting it right at the trial level. But we are looking uh, at the question, first of all, one question would be how to count the cases of whether there are these other appeals as well. But more importantly, both the law professor and Judge amaki and our brief asks to look at the pipeline, and there are two levels of the pipeline, or three. One is that um, in the district courts we try to look at the numbers of instances when trial judges write opinions, magistrate and district j- judges, which is only at the tip of that iceberg. As best we could tell, somewhere between 10 and 30 times a month in Westlaw reports, one can find a a conclusion either upholding or denying disclosure. Moreover, it's sequential. Well, it matters
1: which they do, right? Um, if, they're up, if they're denying disclosure, the statistics don't mean much.
6: We found about half the cases, and the uh, law professors Amaki and judges Amaki found about 104 in which disclosure was required in a six-month period. So there's a significant number at the trial level that exists in terms of the pipeline. If we go just to the case that is before you, the Federal District Judge reserved question on a second attorney-client privilege question because issuing a protective order on the depositions there's a related case here, and he precluded the lawyers from participating in it. I was on the the,
7: the Third Circuit for eight years under this regime, and uh, it didn't seem to me that the sky was falling. In fact, I can't remember any cases, any appeals involving this issue. We had lots of cases of of a variety of kinds. Now, maybe there's, you know, I don't want to be a witness in this, but, uh, (laughs) you know, convince me that the sky really will fall if we, were to adopt this
6: I am not going to convince you that the sky is going to fall but I am going to suggest that it is a that the Cohen rule does not apply to these cases, not only because the sky isn't going to fall. The empirical question is there will be more cases for sure, and there will be more people with comparable privileges knocking at the appellate doors, and there will be sorting. So that goes to the counting. Do we count the cases that knocked and you said no to as well as the cases you said yes to? The other piece is that the Cohen Rule requires a particular kind of importance and a particular kind of severability. In this case, the trial judge said, "In fairness, there has been a waiver because you have injected new issues in the case. In order to get to the in fairness waiver injection, you have to know the facts of this case and weigh the waiver against the uh, other facts in the case."
7: So the Eleventh Circuit was wrong on that issue, didn't they? Hold that this was this was separate
6: from the merits. In our in in our view every one of the this case fails the test on all four of the three to four of the common prongs which is uh, separability and conclusiveness are are distinct ideas potentially importance and remediability and therefore the embeddedness here is typical of cases crime fraud was an example already mentioned in which the factual predicates are here In terms of coming back to the piecemeal, in this case, the trial judge reserved the question. The lawyers below have asked for a pre-ruling that questions to be asked at the deposition will not waive attorney-client privilege. The trial judge said, I don't know the answer to that. It hasn't been fully briefed, and we don't know what you're going to ask. Therefore, in this very case, if the rule were that you could appeal as of right, you could be back in this case twice to the Eleventh Circuit during the pendency of the case. Ms. Resnick, could you go
3: back and articulate what you see as the rule that we have on what's important enough, because that's what really is that question. So how would you articulate a rule that would apply both to the cases in which we've granted interlocutory appeal and to those that you're advocating we don't, Because it's not just freedom from suits like qualified immunity or double jeopardy. We have granted interlocutory appeal in other areas, including in the Cohen case.
6: Well, Cohen involved a major question of the application of the Erie Principle in 1949 involving a State, um, uh, the right of security for expenses. Mm -hmm. And I would take Cohen and the bail case and the drugging case of Sell as instances in which is the litigant. During the pendency of the case, going to be economically secure or free or, or, uh, uh, drugged or not drugged as distinct qualities which are all freighted in either state law or constitutional premises. If we look over the course of the 60 years, the category is not neat, but there are turning points in 1978 with the Co- with the Cooper's opinion, which says death knell, which says Strategic interaction, the shape of class actions is not available for appeal as of right. In 1994, one might have thought in the digital case that a contract not to uh, continue to settle would have been within the set, but the Court said, no, that kind of private contractual interest is not sufficient. And in 2006, in the will case, the Court narrowed it again by saying the race judicata sequence is insufficient. So in the last decade, the Cohen cases have come down to basically qualified immunity or constitutionally freighted, st- structural and almost abstract, not interpersonal dynamics of the litigation, including contractual relationships or evidentiary privileges. But I you Are not all-
4: suggesting that, that uh, Cohen itself wouldn't come out the same way today if, if the question of security for costs whether well, state or federal law hadn't been settled.
6: Well, Cohen predates the, the, this, the uh, Congress's creation of 1292B, which you mentioned earlier, Justice Ginsburg. And so what one is looking at is when Cohen was initially decided, it opened a window. But in the relationship between court and Congress, the judicial conference went to the Congress and said we need a broader window, and Congress adopted verbatim in 1958 the 1292B criteria, which clearly Cohen would have been eligible for or potentially eligible for, and there are attorney-client privilege cases that do go up under 1292B.
1: But it is a bit of a hurdle, isn't it, since you do have to satisfy the uh, uh, materially advanced, the, the litigation and those other criteria?
6: There are a few selective waiver cases. There are a few of these that come up, but you're completely right that it is a hurdle, but we have alternatives here as well. As the example of the, once the Federal S- Court Study Committee suggested we needed more appeal as of right this, uh, after the Cooper's case, Congress responded by authorizing the court through its rulemaking to provide interlocutory orders as final, and 23F is the next, next example, which also provides a mechanism. The basic point is, that there are other routes. The remedial prong of Cohen is, is amply responded to here because, first, internal to the case, there could be protective orders and limited disclosure. Second, you can take the issue as stipulated against you. Third, you could actually, if you ever did go to trial, not testify. That's the Jaffe v. Redmond scenario. Fourth, you have the after-a-fact appeal. Fifth, mandamus is available, and there are circuit courts. But that's only in egregious cases. In the extraordinary case, there is mandamus. There's also certification. And all of these are routes that are filtered. Cohen opens the door completely. Are you
7: arguing that the the collateral order door is closed now, that that – no, there's nobody else is going to get through that door.
6: Um, I can't forecast future cases, except to say that this court has repeatedly, in the last decade, narrowed the door substantially, and I take it it's come in relationship to the door opening through the other mechanisms, the congressional carve-outs like the Classified Information Procedure Act, the congressional carve-out in CAFA, and each of those isn't a wide-open door but either discretionary or time-framed or limited. And, of course, that goes to the problem that an interlocutory appeal really is interlocutory and stops everything, whereas the 23F rule says, absent a court order, there's nothing state at the district court level.
7: An interlocutory appeal doesn't have to stop everything, does it?
6: The, as uh, a rule of filing a Notice of Appeal with a Court of Appeals absent a statutory or rule provision puts the, put, stays the District Court activity, that's why 23F moderates that rule, as I understand it. Further, I wanted to come back to the question here in terms of importance. Rule 501 and 502 of the Federal Rules of Evidence, 502 has just been reworked, 501 remains that in some of the instances the existence of the privilege will arise, will be a question of State law. I know of no one of the eerie cases in which the interlocutory appellate question turns on a question of State law as a predicate, and the D.C. Circuit rule is that it's when there's an adverse privilege ruling that you get appeal as a right. It's that That's the, the D.C. Circuit's rule for it, and indeed it's had uh, uh, several of these, not very many, but a few of these cases. So then 502 has just come with the workings of the judicial conference and the uh, 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 congress together and the lawyers to shape a rule that is very protective of inadvertent waiver protective about its sequential impacts as well and articulating and federalizing that area of law as well as providing under 502a for if you waive in the course of a federal proceeding 502 organizes the way a District Court should think about it. If there were appeal as of right of waiver right now, after this case, then all those 502 cases could come directly, whereas instead a few might get here or not by 1292 b And again, if it looked like there needed to be a wholesale reworking because of the vulnerability of the system, then the, the Court and committees working with the lawyers can draft together some revision. The usual
1: way that district court, uh, uh, after denying uh, the recognition of the privilege, insists that people proceed is they want the lawyer to go to jail. They say you've got it, you get contempt, you can appeal contempt. District judges, as you've mentioned, they want these things to move on and they tend not to think that their rulings are in error. And the lawyers are frequently confronted with the extremely difficult choice of violating what they think is their ethical Obligation or going to jail.
6: Well, it is the case that Judge Wilkinson recently reiterated Judge Friendly's suggestion that, the, or, or commentary, that contempt is, an, is a provision that is available and it is a route. But we found, in and how, in, how is it unless the judge cooperates? It has
4: to be criminal content, contempt. Yeah, so it wouldn't be civil contempt. The judge says, "I'm, I'm not going to hold you." And
6: what we're we have found that many courts of appeals have responded precisely because of either the draconian nature of uh, criminal contempt or uh, the possibility that it won't uh, issue uh, by uh, looking at some of these cases in the extraordinary instance through mandamus, and there are at least a dozen mandamus. No, but mandamus
4: is, is supposed not supposed to be an end run about the final judgment rule, and if and if. Cohen v. Beneficial is available,
6: then mandamus would not lie, right? That, that is directly, that is exactly correct, yes. It is that the appeal of these unappealing roots is because the final judgment rule says even if there's an error and even if it's a very important error, absent this very narrow category of cases that are final through our gloss on Cohen, the basic plan is you wait till the end. In this instance, this district judge, in the related case certified under 1292B, the RICO question that came back, came up to this Court, it also had a 23F appeal in this case. So this is actually a textbook case, if you will, of watching both the pros and cons of interlocutory Mm -hmm. appellate review, and in this instance what we see is that the district court here said this is too run-of-the-mill for 1292B. However, if you want cooperating with the lawyers, I will I will put everything in abeyance if you want to seek mandamus. And so the district judge was attentive to the lawyers' concerns. Moreover, because the district judge has put a protective order on related materials, we have an example of a district judge who is very uh, aware of the parameters of the litigation, and that goes to the remedies. We don't know what, what, what happens. A protective order mandamus? isn't going
1: to work. At, a protective order isn't going to work at all. You're not gonna, I mean, the lawyers on the other side get the privileged material, so they don't care. I mean, in terms of the viability and protection of the privilege, it doesn't matter if the clients get it.
6: In, in — uh, the priv- — the under- underlying the privilege is the workings of the system for both private ordering and for the justice system. The rare instances in which a trial judge affirmatively makes a finding of waiver through conduct in this instance or in some other ways, are going to not undermine the privilege in its initial formation, And the final judgment rule has said repeatedly we could get it wrong on class action certification, we could get it wrong on attorney disqualification. Nevertheless, the cost to the final judgment rule are so substantial.
1: The the American Bar Association has said the exact opposite. It will say that the opening up of the privilege and the disclosure, however rare the cases, will in fact undermine the the value of the privilege.
6: I appreciate, and and before you and Amaki on both sides, are people deeply committed to the administration of justice? Oh,
1: sure. The other people are too. But we, I at least look at a brief from the American Bar Association and view that as a representation of how the people affected here, the lawyers, uh, view the value of the privilege and what will happen to it.
6: And I believe that the judges and lawyers and law professors who've written to you on the other side. Are committed to understanding that the privilege is important instrumentally. Oh, but the law professors,
1: the law professors, aren't the ones who deal with this question on a day-to-day basis and have to worry about going to jail if they want to protect their clients. What they view as their ethical obligations.
6: There are many provisions short of going to jail. And furthermore, I want to come back to the, to the rule. The but it's only going to
3: jail that gives you criminal contempt. Yes, it is. That's immediately appealable.
6: And the. The underlying insight of Cohen is that there are many instances when dramatic events occur in the dynamics of trial, but the Congress has concluded that the final judgment rule requires waiting till you get to the end. And in the instances, contempt is standing here as an alternative around that rule, as is mandamus, as is 1292B, as small windows, not for the regular course of events. The empirics suggests that, by and large, people are getting it right, but there will be a lot of requests for review, and the strategic dimension, which is what the attorney-client privilege and the class action holdings in Cohen are about, will invite more of the strategic pay so that in the plea from the uh, judges who also participated in the amicus Is the
3: attorney-client claim sometimes raised, uh, along with a host of other discovery issues, as a bargaining chip?
6: These are packages that, yes, the attorney-client privilege, and this is granular work by district and magistrate judges of of hundreds of thousands of pieces of paper. It could go piecemeal to the Court of Appeals more than one time, and it can also come up even at trial interrupting a trial. So we could watch the sequence of a frequent repetitious return back and forth to the Court of Appeals on this kind of privilege and potentially on other kinds of privileges. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, counsel. (laughs) MR. NEEDLER.
8: MR. CHIEF JUSTICE, and may it please the Court. In the last 15 years, this Court, in applying the principles of Cohen, has repeatedly stressed that a necessary requirement is that the order involved and the issues implicated be important, and particularly that the issues be so important as to outweigh the values served by the important and usual rule of a final judgment requirement. In our view, the denial of an assertion of attorney client privilege in an individual case does not rise to that level and to the well, current,
1: except when the government is the one raising it
8: no we, we do not we, to be clear, we are not asserting that, a, that, a, that an assertion of attorney client privilege by the government uh, is is immediately uh,
1: yes, but in the government context, what would be in the private context an attorney client privilege is redressed. Uh, as a different type of governmental privilege. When you give advice to a government agency, you don't call that the attorney-client privilege. You call it a governmental privilege, a deliberative privilege, all these other things. In the private sector, when you're an attorney and you give advice to a client, you can't say this has got something. It's the attorney-client privilege.
8: Let, let me also stress we are not arguing that a denial of the assertion of the deliberative process privilege is immediately appealable. Our, the, 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 the submission that we make in the latter part of our brief and that we urge the court not to foreclose here uh, is the um, presidential communications privilege, which applies to communications involving the president or his uh, top advisors. And we also say that the state secrets privilege raises similar concerns. Both of those uh, serve functions of, of constitutional uh, significance. We do not make the same claim about. Um, about the the general uh, government privilege for deliberative
1: process. So you're saying that government lawyers cannot seek an interlocutory appeal of any privilege claim other than presidential communications and state secrets?
8: I don't want to rule out the possibility that there could be a statutory privilege uh, of of some of some particular sort. Well, there you, was, could,
4: you could seek an interlocutory appeal under 1292B. That that
8: that would be that would be available in an appropriate case. There are the there are the limitations. We trust that a court would 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 grant that. But these these are interests of the highest order.
1: Uh, I'm sorry. There are problems with 1292B. Are you telling me when your office writes a letter to the Department of Interior and says, "Look, we're not going to appeal. Your, we'll appeal your case, but we think you've got a really bad case. You're likely to lose," and you assert the only privilege you can assert is the attorney-client privilege, and if a district judge says that's uh, not covered for one reason or another, you you don't get an interlocutory appeal.
8: Uh, no, not not. We don't get an interlocutory appeal under under 1291. No, we are not arguing for that for that position. And for the two particular privileges that that we have identified in, um, in our brief, it it, it is possible that 1292B certification would be granted by the by the court, but it's also possible that it would not. And I, I I'd like to would like to identify, and I think Justice Sotomayor asked about about a test for importance. And the court in its recent decision in will. Um, Try to summarise what 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 it has been driving at over the last 15 years on this importance prong, and whether the importance um, outweighs the the final judgment values. And what the court said there is that there has to that the denial of an immediate appeal has to undermine.  — uh, — let me, let me quote has — to, has to undermine some particular value of high order. And then the Court identified the things that have fallen into that category. It mentioned separation of powers. The Court mentioned disruption of government operations through the denial of qualified immunity — and I would add the denial of statutory immunity under the Westfall Act to that. You don't
1: think that the attorney-client privileges rises to the level of who gets to — who has to put up security for costs that was at issue in Cohen?
8: Uh, we, I think problem—I I do not, and I think the problem is that the denial of, attorney, uh, of attorney-client privilege is tied up with discovery of the sort that happens every day in Federal court. It's bound up with, with uh, discovery plans, that, uh, objections on relevance, materiality, various, various privileges. One of the important values served by the final judgment rule is that the conduct of, of district court proceedings like that is committed to the judgment and discretion of the district court. And if if a disappointed litigant could automatically run to the Court of Appeals, that undermines the ability of the district court judge
1: to manage the day-to-day … we're not talking about … I guess what perhaps the case comes down to is if you think the attorney-client privilege is like every other evidentiary privilege that you've just listed, relevance, materiality, all those sorts of things, or if you think the attorney-client privilege is different, even more important than who has to post security for costs, because it's central to the rule of law, because it's central to how the adversary system functions.
8: I I think the more precise question, Mr. Chief Chief Justice, is whether the the question is whether the denial of an attorney-client privilege uh, threatens to so substantially undermine the values of the privilege to warrant an immediate appeal. and and I think, as has been pointed out by several of the Justices here, there there are exceptions to the privilege which which might uh, undermine the confidence people might have in it. Uh, There there are uh, uncertainties at trial. Uh, These are often fact-based determinations that would be subject to clearly erroneous review on appeal. The very sorts of reasons why Issues like this are committed to the district court 's discretion and reviewed on final judgment when you can find out whether the error actually made a difference
1: uh, but in the, the review i case. Just, I follow your answer, but I, the review on final judgment 's meaningless i mean the cat 's out of the bag
8: well it 's not entirely meaningless it can, if the evidence was used in the trial and, ha, and had a substantial impact, you can have a reversal of the judgment and, and the, the the injury can be mitigated by saying that the, that the evidence cannot be Cannot be used uh, in the retrial. That is not the injury not to the
1: party, but not the injury to the attorney client privilege.
8: Well, again, the, que- the question is the attorney client privilege is not for confidence in its own right, but to encourage frank communications uh, in-, in order to promote uh, litigation and the function of lawyers. And the question is whether the denial of a privilege in a particular case will so undermine that privilege as a general matter. Uh, to warrant an immediate appeal, and we think the answer is clearly no, and also the, the loss of the privilege to the individual litigant, we think, is not a sufficient basis because the other cases that I mentioned that, and that the Court identified in will are situations where the injury transcends the particular case. Do you Mr. think it's Mr.
4: Needler, I think um, — I have this right, but correct me if I'm wrong. I thought in Cohen against Beneficial it wasn't just a question that we'd like to get this legal question settled. But, in fact, for many plaintiffs, if security per costs was something the plaintiff had to put up up front, that would be the end of the lawsuit. It would be the practical end of the lawsuit, unlike an attorney-client privilege, the suit goes on. So Conigan's beneficial wasn't simply that this was an important question unsettled under Erie. It was the practical reality that plaintiffs who had to put up the security for costs would be out of court. That, that, that's a
8: very important — that's a very important point, and I think no, — MR. Well, Needler,
7: is, is that true that the, the, the case goes on? Isn't it true that of the civil cases that get through discovery, only a tiny percentage ever come to an appealable final judgment? The vast, vast majority of these days are settled, are they
8: not? They, they, they are. And I, 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 think, I think that supports the point for, for not having immediate appeal. Why? It means that there never can be an appeal.
7: It well, that the but, but, but this, if, this, if there this, was this, an erroneous this, ruling, it's built into the, it's, it's irretrievably built into the, well, not irretrievably, but powerfully built into the
8: But, the but that's that the that nature was. of trial court proceedings and discovery. Mm-hmm. Judges may make erroneous rulings, and this Court again acknowledged and will that the purpose of the Final Judgment Rule is not to protect or prevent particular injustices that might happen in a, in a particular case. Again, to go back to what the Court has stressed, there has to be a, a, a value, that, and the Court said constitutional or statutory or something with a large public pedigree, where the, where the injury w- will, will not be uh, — where, where the weighing of the costs and benefits uh, comes out quite differently. Well, if the attorney-client
7: privilege to... were in a statute, that would make a difference.
8: I, I don't think so. If, the, if there was a statute that just codified the, privi- the, the privileges like this, what I, what, I, what I was suggesting is there might be a statute that would uh, identify a particular governmental interest as the in the D.C. Circuit's decision in the uh, in the England in, case. Putting
1: aside the question of whether the attorney-client privilege has a good pedigree in public law, my experience has been that litigants on one side frequently requests and demand and discovery, material they know is covered by the attorney-client privilege, one, precisely because that's where the good stuff is, and two, because it gives them leverage, because they know that the other side is going to have to go through this impossible process and can't get an immediate appeal. Why isn't that a concern uh, that we should have?
8: I, I think, and that's it. district judges are are who manage these cases every day can see through that, and 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 can be trusted to, by and large, make correct results. It may be that there will be an an occasional erroneous determination, but again, as for privileges generally, that's that's so. I did want to make one final point about about irreparable injury. For the sorts of privileges that we have identified in, in, in our brief, the, the presidential communications privilege and whatnot, that, that harm is immediate and broad on behalf of the nation as a whole. That is a different question from a harm to a particular litigant uh, uh, when a privilege is denied in a particular case and it doesn't undermine the broader purposes of the privilege.
1: Thank you, Mr. Needler. Uh, Mr. Allen, you have four minutes remaining.
2: I'd like to address the question that Justice Alito raised with regard to whether or not an appeal of a collateral issue dealing with waiver or privilege would stay the litigation. The answer is it does not. The case remains with the District Court. The District Court is empowered to manage the case. Only the question addressing the issue would go up with collateral order jurisdiction. Indeed, in this case, the Court did not stay the litigation below. So the Court maintains that ability to manage its own docket. To be sure. He doesn't go ahead with the trial, does it? He has not gone ahead with the trial. trial. It never would, would it? It, it,
0: He's certainly empowered to do so. Well, can it go ahead with a trial while a a material issue is still pending? I can't imagine that.
2: Your Honor, the the scenario that you raise would put the attorney or the client, depending upon who's in the box, if you will, uh, to some hard choices. But there are two ways that the case stays. Either the District Court has to order that the case stays, or on appeal, the Court of Appeals has to order that the case stays. The the parties and their counsel cannot stay the case. So I agree with you that it could be a very difficult situation for the parties.
0: Well, I can't imagine a judge going to trial in a case when an important issue like this is pending on on appeal. Uh, Has has that ever happened?
2: uh, I'm unaware that it has ever happened, Your Honor, and, and I hope it doesn't. <laughs> but but the, the point is that the district court maintains that power and authority to run, to run its courtroom. The, the United States uh, cites will for the proposition that, that the collateral order doctrine is designed uh, to impact some particular value of high order, and it recites from will a number of those uh, particular values of high order, including uh, qualified immunity as this Court recognized in in Harlow, a a doctrine of common law origin much like the attorney-client privilege. The the doctrine in in Harlow of qualified immunity is designed to impact and affect the efficient operation of government. The design of the attorney-client privilege is intended to have the same impact on the efficient and effective operation of the administration of justice. If I could go back, Justice Breyer, to the question that you raised with regard to other privilege, I would suggest that the holding in this case in our favor would have no impact on the Court's later determination of privileges of husband, wife, spousal uh, privileges, uh, or of priest-penitent uh, type privileges. I would suggest that the better course would be to examine a case that develops the importance or the impact of those privileges but certainly, in, with regard, for example, to spousal immunity or spousal privilege, the, the way that the states recognize them, I believe all 50 states recognize spousal uh, uh, privilege, is varied. All right. so,
5: so I think any system of, uh, is, that denies you the interlocutory appeal will, in fact, work some injustice. I have no mm-hmm. doubt about that. Any system that allows too many interlocutory appeals wrecks the judicial system through delay. Now, I'd think on that kind of question, which is here, maybe there's some information. Did you do come across with the ABA, for example, which has three hundred thousand members, six hundred, you know, hundreds of thousands of members? There might be instances in the circuits where appeal was denied, where the lawyers would say, "My goodness, appeal was denied. I want to tell you the hardship that that worked." Has anyone gone around and tried to find, if there are such instances as there must be, how serious it was, how harmful, how often do we have any empirical information on that question?
2: Your Honor, I I, I do not have any empirical information to answer that question. But but to go to the the underlying premise of whether or not those other cases might generate some floodgate, if you will, I think we... We've answered, and to be clear, to the respondent's description of our counting, I don't think it's a statistical analysis. We simply counted the actual appeals. uh, Is it wrong for me
5: to expect that if this would work a lot of instances of serious hardship not allowing the appeal, some lawyers in their meetings would be upset and they would raise a few examples? So doesn't the fact that you've been unable to find any tend to count against
2: you? I I don't believe it does, Your Honor. I don't believe that should, should count against us. Thank, Thank you,
1: you Council. The case is submitted.